Family, I'm under no false pretenses today. I know many of you saw that outline this morning out in the lobby, read the third, the third point on that outline, and you're not going to listen to anything else I have to say until I get to that point. I pray that that's not the case, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help. Lord God, we, we need you today, oh God. Lord God, I am but a man. Lord, and I need you. These people in front of me, God, are just men and women, and they need you, O oh God. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And unless your Holy Spirit is in all of us, O oh God, we cannot ever worship you and honor you properly, O oh God. So help us all today, Lord. Help the hearer today, God. Help me, the speaker, God, to glorify and magnify your name, O Lord, to not go beyond the bounds of Scripture, O Lord, but to faithfully, O God, preach your word for your glory. Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So every first Sunday of the month, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And last month, Pastor Vladimir began our series on the Apostles' Creed, and today we are going to continue along on that series. So right away I want to address a concern. Some of us are looking at this banner that we have up here behind me that says Sola Scriptura. It's English, it just means scripture alone. And you're asking, why would any church hang a banner like that and then use the Apostles' Creed or any other creed for that matter? And that's a legitimate concern. But Creeds are inevitable. Creeds are an inevitable reality. A creed is a statement of beliefs that summarizes the core doctrines of a church. It summarizes what a body of Christians believe about a particular subject. It summarizes what the Bible teaches about a particular subject. And if someone asks you, what is the gospel, nobody's going to start in Genesis 1-1, recite the entire Bible all the way to Revelation 22-21. No, you don't do that. What you do is you give a summary of what the Bible teaches about what the gospel is. Amen? Amen. So every Christian has creeds. Every church has a creed. And I submit to you that it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible to function in the Christian life without some sort of creed. So the issue is not whether you have a creed or not. The issue is between those who have public creeds and those who have private ones. Those who have public creeds that are written down and codified and that could be subject to public scrutiny versus those who have private creeds that are unwritten and impossible to be tested by scripture. That's the only difference. And the irony is that people who say no creeds but the Bible they actually have creeds, you just can't hold them to anything, and it can't be evaluated by the scripture that they claim is so authoritative, and therefore accountability is impossible. Amen? So, when you say, Jesus is God, amen? Jesus is God, amen? That's a creed, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's a creed. So, we function all the time with creeds. In, in the book of Jude, verse 3, uh, the, the, the Jude says that the faith was once for all delivered to all the saints. And that word faith there describes a body of doctrines that was given to the church by the apostles. And false teaching, apostasy, and heresy is meaningless if you do not have standards and markers to, that you can hold people to. Right? How can a church hand down the faith once and for all delivered to the saints if the faith is not summarized, codified in any positive, essential type of way? How can pastors prevent the body from falling into false teaching, apostasy, and heresy if we have no guidelines and no fences that can determine what is and is not an acceptable interpretation of Scripture? How are we supposed to do that? Family, heretics always claim to be faithful Christians. 
They always work with the same Bible that faithful Christians and Orthodox Christians work with, and they use the exact same scriptural proof text as, orth- as Orthodox believers do to argue their cases. But the difference is that they interpret them differently than we do. Amen? So what a creed does is a creed helps pastors and the congregations be obedient, to be obedient to Paul's exhortation in Romans 16, 17, that says to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So the church must be steadfast in the truth. The church must be faithful to stay, to stay, uh, to faithfully hand down the faith to the next generation of believers. Pastors have to help the body to not stray away from what the, what the gospel is, and pastors must guard the flock from wolves and false teachers. And, and family, not having a formal creed is like sailing without a compass or a map. We must have a clear standard of orthodoxy to guide us, to unite us, and to protect us. And without it, we run the risk of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, confusion, division, and false teaching. And in his sermon last, uh, on, uh, I believe it was March the 5th, uh, Pastor Vladimir, he quoted Ephesians 4.3 when he said, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And he also said that it was our goal to promote Christian unity at the communion table. Right? So our aim is to encourage Christian unity by welcoming the Lord's people to the Lord's table and to discourage hypocrisy by fencing off the Lord's table from those who are not actually the Lord's people. That's the goal. Amen? So that brings us to today's sermon. If you are looking at that brochure that you have, there's a copy of the Apostles' Creed. Pastor Vladimir, he covered up to the line he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So I want you to notice something there. If you're looking at the Apostles' Creed, there's a logical progression to the uh, Apostles' Creed. It's divided into three sections, and each section covers the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, each section, in each, within each section, there's a logical progression. The second section of the Apostles' Creed focuses on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is arranged around the key events of Jesus' life. And each event builds upon the previous event, leading to the ultimate proclamation at, of Jesus as Lord. So today we'll be looking at the lines, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried, and he descended to the dead. So our goal is to examine the word of God to see if these words are an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches. So in other words, does the Bible teach that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? Does the Bible teach that he was crucified, dead and buried? And does the Bible teach that he descended to the dead? Family? God cannot die. It's impossible for God to die. For this reason, the only way this creed can be true is if the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was truly man. The statement that he suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried, and that he descended to the dead is utter nonsense if Jesus Christ is not truly man. Amen? So, for the, so the first thing we need to do is find out, does the scripture teach that our mediator, Jesus Christ, was in fact truly man. So if you look at the passage that Pastor Vladimir read, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. If you look at it again, it reads, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Family, this passage is clear. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, and that mediator is the man Christ Jesus, and he gave his life as a ransom. 
Jesus is the only go-between because he is both truly God and truly man, and he can therefore represent both sides equally. He represents God as his true and final prophet. He represents us as a mediator, and as mediator, he gave himself as a ransom, meaning he died. Only men die. God does not die. Men die. Amen? The fact that he gave himself as a ransom means that it was an act of sacrifice, and this is a clear indication that he was truly man. And this man, Christ Jesus, established his position as the sole mediator between God and men because the man, Christ Jesus, suffered because he died and he descended to the dead. If you are following along in the outline, we're at point number one, The man Christ Jesus suffered. The man Christ Jesus suffered. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the one of the most marvelous and mysterious events in all of human history. A divine person who is the supreme being took on flesh. God the Son became God, man. He is God incarnate, both divine and human, forever. This marvelous and mysterious supernatural event by which God intrudes into history with the intention of saving sinners is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Scripture teaches that in the incarnation, God the Son took on a a genuine human body and soul. You find that in 1 John 1.14, Hebrews 2.14, and 1 Timothy 2.5. He took on the frailty of humanity, yet without the sinfulness of humanity. Romans 8.3. Christ was a flesh and blood man, and in his humanity he suffered. And the suffering he experienced was real, the suffering he experienced was physical, and the suffering he experienced was spiritual. His spirit, when I say his suffering was real, what I mean is, is that it was, it was historical. Family, it, it is possible for us to have sound doctrine but not be sound in the faith. It is possible for our beliefs to be theologically exact and yet lack faith and love. Right? There was a real danger we face. That's a real danger we face, and we have to take that seriously. Nevertheless, just because that danger is real, that does not justify the conclusion that you do not have to think deeply about the incarnation and understand it. Amen? It is, wrong, it is a wrong conclusion to think, to believe that we don't have to search the scriptures and think deeply about these things or think that they are irrelevant or inappropriate. We are duty-bound to gather all the biblical information on these topics. We are duty-bound to gather all the biblical information that we have about Jesus, organize it into some kind of logical, coherent whole in our minds. And our gathering of this information is only inappropriate when it turns into vain speculation and it loses touch with historical reality. That makes sense to you? Jesus has revealed himself to us through the scriptures, and that is written prophecy, poetry, wisdom, and historical narrative. In Romans 11.33, when the Apostle Paul said, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable are his ways. You and I will never be able to say these things with the same amount of joy and amazement if we detach our faith from history and ignore the historical reality of Jesus' suffering. Galatians 4, 4, verses 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So we might receive adoption as sons. God's Son was born in the fullness of time, And the reason he was born is so that we might receive adoption, family. 1 Timothy 2 through 6 says, The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, which is the testimony given at the proper time, 
So in other words, the historical reality of the incarnation is fundamental to our salvation. Fundamental to our salvation. The second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, taking on human flesh and becoming a man is a historical event that happened at a specific time and place in history, and that historical event affects a, a spiritual reality, your and my salvation. If he does not, in history, become a man, you're not saved. The, the suffering of the man Christ Jesus, the suffering that he experienced was real. It was real. He suffered as a flesh and blood historical man. As a matter of fact, that suffering happened from the moment of his birth. Jesus Christ, from the moment of his birth, is identified with human suffering. Yes, it's true that the, the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross is unimaginable. It's unimaginable. But we must not be naive at this point, family. The crucifixion is the climax and the conclusion of his suffering. But his entire life is marked by suffering. From the cradle to the tomb, his life is marked by suffering. Yes, yes, there was moments in Jesus' life when he rejoiced and he was satisfied doing the will of the Father. Nevertheless, his, his life is marked by suffering, right? When we consider his birth, on one level, what we see is glory. The angels sang, shepherds showered him with adoration, and the magi left gift at, gifts at his feet. But on another level, the circumstances surrounding his birth paint a picture of lowliness, condescension, and humiliation. The Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Messiah was born in a stable. Not long after that, in Matthew 2.13, the Bible tells us that his family was forced to flee to Egypt to avoid Herod's assassination attempt. And then they returned and he lived in Nazareth, a place of low regard. People questioned if he could even be the Messiah because he was from Nazareth. His own disciples and John one four, uh, uh, John 1 46 when Philip told Nathaniel we found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph and Nathaniel's response was can anything good come from Nazareth <laughs> at the very beginning of his public ministry he was harassed and he was tempted by the prince of darkness in ways that you and I could never imagine family we confess that he was free from sin, but he was not free from temptation. He was tempted and tried in every way, Hebrews 4.15. The man, Christ Jesus, suffered as a man, as a real man. He experienced hunger, Mark 11.12. He experienced thirst, John 4.7. He experienced fatigue, John 4.6. And he was poor. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. His suffering was real. He suffered as a man, and his suffering cannot be confined to physical suffering. The Bible tells us that he suffered rejection. Mark 3.21, it implies that his family misunderstood him and thought he was out of his mind, his own family. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 29, the Bible says that he was in a synagogue in his hometown. He read a portion of the scripture a portion of Isaiah, then he claimed that that scripture had been fulfilled in him. And when they heard these things, all of the people in the synagogue was filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. He was rejected by even the people in his own hometown. He was rejected by the uh, political and religious establishment. The liberal uh, Sadducees rejected him. The conservative Pharisees rejected him. And in Matthew 27, 24, before ordering Jesus' crucifixion, Pontius Pilate publicly washes his hands and declares himself innocent of Jesus' blood, implying that he knew that there was no basis for the charges against the Savior. And yet, he knew that Jesus did not deserve to die, and he ordered his crucifixion anyway. 
He was rejected by the Sadducees. The, he was rejected by the Republicans. He was rejected by the Democrats. He was rejected by the Independents. And he was rejected by the Roman government. And in, in the darkest moment of his life, his own disciples fled, denied, and rejected him. Even his closest disciple, Peter, denied and rejected him. In Luke 24, after Jesus was arrested, the Bible says that, Jesus, that Peter was following at a distance. And on three separate occasions, when somebody recognized Peter, he, he rejected the Savior by denying that he even knew him. Not only did he suffer rejection, but he also suffered emotionally. He suffered the sorrow and the distress of his anticipated crucifixion, death, and shame, Matthew 26, 37. He suffered grief over the death of his friend, John eleven thirty five, And in his humanity, Jesus suffered the limitations of having a human mind. He had to grow in knowledge and wisdom, the Bible says, Luke 2, 52. The man Christ Jesus took on human nature for our sake so that he could suffer for our sake. He took on a body and a genuine human soul and suffered in our place. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could endure the suffering, the sorrow, the pain, and the rejection that we deserved. Family, if you and I fail to consider Christ's humiliation in the incarnation, we diminish the significance of what the Savior did to save us. If we can find Jesus' suffering to that afternoon on Calvary, and we do not consider all of the suffering that he endured throughout his entire life as a man, we will belittle the magnitude of what our Savior did to redeem his bride. Right? When we consider how far Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, descended in taking on human nature, it will frame for us what it means. I'm sorry. When we consider how far he, he descended and came down as a man, when we think about the heights that he was at and how far he came down in taking on human nature, what it does for us, it'll frame for us what it actually means to love people like Jesus. That makes sense to you? It'll frame for what, when we say, you know those stupid braces that say, what would Jesus do? It'll frame for us what that actually means. Right? It'll frame what that actually means. If we reject or fail to take seriously or meditate seriously on how Jesus suffered as a man, we'll trivialize any and every application and attempts to live and love like him. So the command for husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church, uh, It'll be trivialized if you ignore how much Christ actually suffered for his bride. Because if, 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 if I say Jesus only suffered on Calvary that afternoon, then I only got to suffer an afternoon for my bride. No. He suffered his entire life for his bride. The command for all Christians in Ephesians 4, 32, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, Amen. will be trivialized if we disregard how much Christ suffered for our forgiveness. The man Christ Jesus suffered as a true man. His suffering was real. His suffering is a documented reality. His suffering was spiritual. His suffering was emotional. His suffering, it was physical. And in summary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Not only did the man Christ Jesus suffer, but the man Christ Jesus died. That's point number two, if you're following along on the handout. The man Christ Jesus died. The man Christ Jesus died, and his death was necessary for our salvation. In Acts 17.3, when the apostle Paul was in Thessalonica, the word of God says that he reasoned from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. First things first, it's obvious, in order for you to rise from the dead, what do you got to be? Dead. Right? So this narrative, we see, in this narrative, we see Apostle Paul making two arguments. 
argument number one, that the Christ, the promised Old Testament Messiah, had to suffer death and rise from the dead. Argument number two, the man, the man Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Christ, the Old Testament promised Messiah. Paul is declaring that the suffering and the death of the Messiah is necessary and essential to our salvation. So in other words, the death and resurrection of the man Christ Jesus was not accidental. It was not an incidental event, but they are a necessary part of God's redemptive plan for the salvation of his bride. You and I are not saved if Jesus Christ is not a real man, he does not suffer, he does not die, and he does not rise from the dead. You are still in your sins and so am I. That is absolutely essential for you to believe that for you to be a Christian. Amen? His death was necessary for us to receive the forgiveness of sin. His death was necessary for us to be free from the power of Satan. The Lord declares in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The author of Hebrews is making a comparison here between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the sacrifice of Christ. So under the Old Testament law, forgiveness of sins required the shedding of blood through the sacrifice of animals. And then he keeps going on here in Hebrews 9.23, and he says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. So, in other words, the shedding of blood was necessary under the old covenant, but those things that, the, that, that, pure, that were purified by blood, they were just copies and shadows of the true heavenly things, right? And therefore, the heavenly things require a better sacrifice than the earthly copies. The better sacrifice is the man Christ Jesus. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice because the shedding of his blood provided the forgiveness for sins once and for all. Once and for all. So the priest in, no, I'm sorry, I can't rant. I don't got time. Listen, transition. Listen to me, listen to me. Not only was the death of Christ necessary for us to receive the forgiveness of sin, but his death was also necessary to free us from the power of Satan. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses in the circumcision of your flesh. God made a, I'm sorry, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the um, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in verses 13 through 14 of Colossians chapter 2, we are told that we were dead. We were dead in sins. We were dead in trespasses. But God, he made us alive. And this happened because all of our sins have been forgiven, the Bible says. But how are our sins forgiven, you ask? Because the record of debt was canceled. What does that mean? Great question. The liability that we owe to a holy God has been removed. It's been set aside. Then you ask, how was it set aside? And I say, another great question. It was nailed to the cross with the Savior. But that's not all. You didn't ask enough questions. Because our Savior canceled the record of debt against us by nailing it to the cross, now the rulers and the authorities are disarmed, put to shame, and defeated. That's what this says. I didn't make this up. Family, there was a time when Satan had a hold over every one of us. We followed him, we obeyed him, and we bowed down to him. There was a time 
when we were all under the sway of the serpent. And the hiss of his voice was the music that we danced to. And we enjoyed it, and we reveled in it. There was a time when we lived according to the rulers and the authorities in this world. But family, if you're a Christian, that time is over. Our Savior defeated and disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He defeated the works of the devil. And whatever power Satan had over us is gone. The head of the serpent has been crushed. Hebrews 2.13 says, Our enemy, the devil, was defeated because Christ took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because our Savior took on human nature, and in his humanity he died. Satan's power over us has been crushed. Amen, hallelujah, somebody. Once again, the death of the man Christ Jesus was necessary for our sins to be forgiven and to be free from the power of Satan. And because there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, we are free. Amen? Family, it's absolutely necessary for the Messiah to be truly man in order to accomplish the divine mission given to him by the Father. His death had to be an atoning death so that our sins could be forgiven and redemption won for us. And his death could only serve as an atonement if he was a man. Why? Why? Because he died in our place. Because he was our substitute. And therefore, to be a substitute for a man, you got to be what? A man. Yes, it's true. Jesus is not a mere man. He's fully God. Yes, amen. Hallelujah. But to die in our place as our substitute, it's necessary for him to be a true man. Hebrews 10.4 says, It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those animal sacrifices offered to God under the old covenant were offered over and over, and over, and over again. But they were insufficient to take away our sin. They were ineffective to atone for our sin or to pay our sin debt because they were nothing but types and shadows of a greater sacrifice to come in the true Lamb of God. The true Lamb of God who would actually take away sins actually take away all the sins of those who believed in the promises of God. And this true and greater lamb who was put forward by the Father is Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus. When Jesus died and he said it was finished, what he was doing, y'all, he was clocking out. He was the first priest in all of history to clock out of work. Every other Old Testament priest, what they did was consistently over time, time after, I'm off the notes, Anita, I'm sorry, I apologize. Time after time after time, year after year after year after year, what they did was they sacrificed bulls and goats and sheep and whatever else you brought to them. But none of them took away sin. That's why they could never stop. But we have a high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died once and for all, and it's finished. He clocked out. He sat down at the right hand of God, and it's done. Your sins are forgiven, family, if you are in Christ. And the only way he could represent us as priest and as our substitute is if he was a real flesh and blood man. Another reason he had to be a man, a true man, was so that he could do what the first Adam failed to do. Adam was a real man. Don't let none of these liberal theologians lie to you and say he wasn't. That's a real man, okay? Adam was a real man, and he represented us as our federal head. He represented us as a man, and he failed. He had one job, and he failed miserably. 
But the man Christ Jesus, the second Adam, came to undo what the first Adam messed up. The second Adam came to repair what the first Adam broke. In Romans 5, 12 through 11, I'm sorry, 5, 12 through 21, it lays out for us this sad reality that the first Adam's disobedience brought to himself and his posterity guilt and bondage to sin. So when the first Adam fell, he brought onto us guilt and he brought onto us sin. He brought onto us the bondage of sin. He brought onto us death and condemnation and judgment. All of that came into the world because of what the first Adam did. So you are guilty, and I am, are guilty because of the actual sins we committed, but we also guilty because we, are, uh, we were born of the lineage of Adam. Right? But that same passage, uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, it, it, it declares this glorious truth that the second Adam's obedience brought freedom from that bondage and grace. Listen to what your Lord says in Romans 5.19. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That one man is the man Christ Jesus. He is the true and better second Adam. And it was necessary for him to be truly man in order to be a proper representative for us. Family, listen to me. We want you to be able to Give a reason for the hope that lies within you. We want you to be able to explain and understand, yes, that it was necessary for the Christ to die and truly be man. We want you to understand these things uh, intellectually, but we want you to move, we want you to move beyond uh, uh, Christianity being an intellectual exercise. And you have to have confidence in him. Amen? Confidence and trust that he is God and he is your savior. Right? And because he was a real man, because he was a real man. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses as a man because he was tempted and tried in every respect the same way we were, yet without sin. And so for this reason, you can draw near to him for mercy, for help whenever you need it because he knows, he knows. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He knows rejection. He knows what it's like to battle temptation. Family, he knows. Because he was a real man. And he sympathizes. And if you are battling with these things, come to him. Come to him. Don't run away. If you're struggling with sin, come to him. If you're feeling rejected, come to him. If you're feeling pain and hurt, you feel like quitting, come to Christ. He knows, family, he knows. He understands, he sympathizes with us. Come to him. The man Christ Jesus died his death was not only necessary for our salvation and the freedom from the bondage of sin, but his death was also substitutionary. And therefore, he must be truly man. And because he was truly man, he died and descended the way all men die and descend. The man Christ Jesus descended. If you're following along in your handout, that's point number three. The Lord Jesus Christ being truly man, he truly died, and he was in the realm of the dead for three days. So straight away, I want to deal with two issues right off the bat. Number one, I want to be absolutely clear at this point. Jesus Christ did not suffer in hell. If you leave here today and say that I said Jesus suffered in hell, you wasn't listening to me. Okay? He did not in any way suffer the wrath of God after the cross at all, in any way, whatsoever. If you say I said that, I didn't say that. Okay? The confusion is because in other, an older version, in other versions of the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into hell. 
Now, the confusion is over this word hell, right? In the Apostles' Creed, the Greek word is, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Greek word is Hades, right? It was translated into Latin, and then it was translated into English. And in English, that word was rendered hell. The word hell does not have the same connotation for us that the word Hades does, okay? And also, in the New Testament, it speaks of a place called Gehenna. So Gehenna is the place of suffering and torment. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus went to Gehenna and suffered. It don't, it don't say that, okay? So again, I want to be absolutely clear about this. All the suffering of hell that you and I deserve, Jesus bore in his body on the cross, no suffering in Gehenna, no suffering in hell. The Savior was not given over to Satan as a ransom to suffer. He did not experience the wrath of hell after he died. He did not suffer in hell. If you say I said that, you're either not paying attention or you just want to argue. Okay? Issue number two. Luke 23:43 says that the that Jesus says to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise, right? So when we say that Jesus descended, what I'm saying is that he entered into the realm of the dead before his resurrection, which means he went to Hades or Sheol or the place of the dead. This interpretation does not necessarily mean that Jesus did not immediately receive the immediate, I'm sorry, this Interpretation does not necessarily mean that Jesus did not offer immediate uh, blessedness to the criminal on the cross. All this is suggesting is is that Jesus' descent into the realm of the dead occurred before his resurrection. Family, the only way the thief on the cross was going to paradise is that he had to die, right? How does he get to the, how can the thief on the cross get to paradise without dying? You got to separate his soul from his body in order for him to see paradise. Now, we can, every Christian's been arguing for how many centuries about where, where paradise is and what happened after Jesus died. I don't want to make that argument. I don't really care to. Okay? The point is, is that he died, and his soul was separated from his body, and he was in the realm of the dead for three days. You can't argue about that. That's what Christianity teaches. Right? So the problem is, the phrase, I'm sorry, the phrase, uh, today you will be with me in paradise, could be interpreted as a promise of immediate blessedness or, or rest in the afterlife. So this interpretation doesn't necessarily contradict the belief that Jesus descended into the realm of the dead. So the problem is, is when we hear descended into hell, we immediately think, spatial and physical. Like you can't take a shovel and dig down into Sheol. It's a spiritual place. So you shouldn't be thinking physical, spatial. All you should be thinking is, is that it's a state of he was dead. He died. That makes sense to you? That's the only argument that the, I believe that this creed was trying to make. He went to the place where dead people go. If you're going to hell, what do you got to be first, family? If you're going to heaven, what do you got to be first? That's the realm of the dead. That's the only point that I think the creed is making. That's the only point I'm making. So if you want to come argue with me, argue me about what I'm actually saying. Amen? Okay. Listen, I want to be careful here. And I don't want to speculate or go beyond what the Bible teaches. Right? I don't want to go any further than what God has revealed to us in Scripture about Jesus' descent. But we also have a duty to consider all that the Bible teaches about the subject, to remain silent where the Bible is silent, and given the fact that we have a duty to hold fast to the trustworthy word that was taught and to not deviate from the apostles' teachings, we have to do that at the same time while we consider what the church has taught historically about this subject, because we are not the only men that have been endowed by the Holy Spirit. We're not the only generation that has been endowed by the Holy Spirit. Previous other people have as well, and we need to consult those people and see what they have to say, right? And family, and in researching this subject historically, we've, it's a massive amount of ink that has been spilt on this subject, 
and you can find almost every possible perspective about this topic. Some early church fathers affirmed that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended to the nether regions to preach. The Western fathers, such as Tertullian and Augustine, believed that Christ descended into the lower regions to unite the faithful patriarchs and, and prophets to himself. Thomas Aquinas believed that Christ's soul descended to Hades to offer the benefits of his suffering to Old Testament believers who were deprived of his glory because of original sin. The Lutheran viewpoint is that Christ's descent to hell uh, signified his ultimate victory over Satan and his condemnation of those who remain unsaved and, and, and confined in hell. Calvin interpreted uh, Christ's descent to hell as symbolic and represented as a symbolic representation of his agony on the cross. Family, when you attempt to see what the church before us said about this subject regarding Christ's descent, there has been so much dispute about this subject that one commentator said reading the debates surrounding Christ's descent is like descending into hell itself. <laughs> and given our goal here is to express unity and to make clear who is welcome to the communion table with us, I want to repeat myself. We cannot go further than what God has revealed in Scripture about Jesus' descent and we have a duty to and we have a duty to consider all that the Bible teaches about this subject, but we must remain silent where the Bible is silent. Amen. In one of his many confrontations with the Jews in Matthew 12:40, the Jews were demanding a sign from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he responded by saying, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." But no sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if you go to the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1, to, 1 through 2, the Bible says this. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. He goes on in verses 5 and 6 of Jonah chapter 2. He says, the waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up, who closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord of God. Jonah says that his survival in the fish was a deliverance from Sheol. The Lord Jesus says that Jonah's experience in the fish was a sign. It's what we might call a type. Or a shadow. And the fulfillment of a type in the shadow is always greater than the type and shadow itself. And Jesus experienced to a much greater Jesus experienced to a much greater degree what Jonah experienced in being rescued and raised up from Sheol. So Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish in the heart of the sea. Jesus spent three days in the belly of Sheol itself in the heart of the earth. Jonah experienced symbolically what Jesus experienced literally in descending into Sheol. And as Jonah emerged alive from the fish after three days, Jesus will emerge in resurrection from the grave. Jesus says that he will spend three days in the heart of the earth Jonah's experience was a foreshadowing of Jesus' experience. And this is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, him being Messiah includes a descent into Sheol. But when Jesus says this, he makes no specification of to whom he will descend and what he will do when he gets there. Amen? Just that he did. He descended into Sheol. 
Jesus did not suffer in hell, but the Bible says he died and he descended to the dead. He descended to Sheol. The Old Testament place of the dead is this Hebrew word Sheol I keep using. The New Testament place for the dead is the Greek equivalent Hades. Both testaments speak of a temporary uh, realm of the dead for those who are awaiting eternal final judgment. And there is biblical evidence for Christ's descent, and that evidence is clear. Luke 2, 24-44 says that, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day, raised from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So in verse 46, you see this phrase, raised from the dead. That word is a plural noun, which means uh, the idea that's trying to be conveyed is that Christ will raise on the third day from the dead ones. The man Christ Jesus died, and he descended to the place, to the realm of the dead. When many hear the word descent, we quite automatically think down, and we quite automatically think hell. That's not my fault, that's yours. Right? That's not the idea that's trying to get conveyed. You can't take a shovel and dig down to Sheol. It's a spiritual place. Okay, the point that I'm trying to make, and I believe the only point the creed is trying to make, is that Christ died and he actually died as a man. Right? And when he died, he died like all men die. Because the man Christ Jesus was truly man and therefore he had to truly die. So, let me ask you this question. What happens when a man dies? His body and his soul are separated. So what makes you a man is that you have a body, you have a soul. That's, what, that's the definition of what makes you a man. That's what makes you human. And scripture teaches that death is a separation of the soul from the body. So whenever a man dies and is buried, his body remains in the earth, and his soul is separated from his body. Now, depending on his disposition before the Lord, that's going to determine where that spirit is going. right? But nevertheless, to die, to enter into the realm of the dead, is for me to, if I separate your soul from your body, I kill you you die. The man Christ Jesus experienced the same. That's the only point that I believe that this creed is making. That's the only point that we're trying to make today. That makes sense to you? In the Old Testament, Sheol was the place where men descended, whether they were righteous or unrighteous. Regardless of their disposition before God, the scriptures understood all men would descend to Sheol at death. Death was a common fate to all men, and therefore Sheol was a common destination for all men upon death. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever you find, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay? In Genesis 37.35, when Joseph's brothers lied to their father Jacob, saying that Joseph had been killed, Jacob states that Joseph was in Sheol the place where he was going to go to, too, when he said this. He said, I shall go to Sheol to my son, mourning. In Isaiah 38, verses 10 through 11, this verse speaks of Hezekiah's fear of going to Sheol and being separated from the Lord. I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord the Lord in the land of the living, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Hannah, Samuel's mother, saying in 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. Likewise, the scripture states that Sheol is a destination for the wicked as well. Job 24, 19 says, drought and heat snatch away the, the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. 
Uh, Psalm 917 says, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Psalm 31, 17 says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. So in the Old Testament, Sheol is described as a place where the dead go. It is described as a condition or a state of being where the dead are cut off from the land of the living, whether they are righteous or unrighteous. So furthermore, the Old Testament foretold of the Messiah's descent to Sheol, the promises of a future reality in which the Messiah would suffer, would die, and would descend and rise again were fulfilled in the person of Christ. The Psalms talk about this reality in Psalm chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me, O Lord. My God, I cry to you for help, and you heal me, O Lord. You have, brought, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored my life from, those, from among those who go down to the pit. Also, in uh, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, the Bible says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for I will not for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, you may be thinking, you just read a bunch of Bible verses out of Psalm. That ain't saying nothing about Jesus at all. That was David. But what's interesting about the last one, Psalm 16, 8, is quoted by Peter at Pentecost in his sermon. And Peter gives us a sanctified interpretation of this psalm. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Acts 22, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. While you're turning there, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And at this point in the sermon, he just finished explaining to the onlookers that the people speaking, he was just, he's explaining to the onlooker that all these people that were speaking in biblical tongues were not in fact drunk. So he, he explains all that, what was going on, and then he goes on to say this. He goes on to explain the, the Jesus' true identity. So if you're looking at verse 22, it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you also know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was, it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full with, of gladness with your presence. Then he goes on, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that one of his descendants would sit on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, he died, and he was not abandoned to Sheol. Yes, he descended into Sheol, but praise God, he didn't leave him there. Amen? Furthermore, the Old Testament prophet, in the Old Testament prophets, we see shadows and types of the Messiah's future resurrection. In John 5.39, Jesus claims that all scriptures point to him. All scriptures point to him. He says the same thing in Luke 44, that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were ultimately fulfilled in him. 
In Matthew 2, 15, the word of God says that Jesus went to Egypt as a child, fulfilling the prophecy in Hosea 1.11 that says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. So this verse was originally about the nation of Israel, but it was applied to Jesus, implying that Jesus is the true Israel. So when you read the Old Testament and you read things about Israel, you should not, the first question you should be asking is, should not be, what does this have to do with me? The first question you should be asking is, what does this have to do about Jesus? Amen? Okay. So when we read about the nation of Israel, about their deliverance out of Babylonian captivity, the language that the Bible uses is the language of resurrection. Right? So they spent time in captivity, but God brought them out. And when God talks about bringing them out in the prophets, he talks about it the way he talks about resurrection, right? So in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, very familiar passage of scripture, the valley of the dry bones, right? In the prophecy, in this prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, or Ezekiel, I'm sorry, the prophet Ezekiel was taken up by the spirit of God to the valley of the dry bones. And God asked Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, only you know. Right? And in verse 11, it says this. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Okay? Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, I, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. The valley of the dry bones represents the house of Israel that had been cut off from God and exiled into Babylonian captivity. But God, being faithful, promises to restore Israel and free them from that captivity. And the restoration of Israel is a sign of God's promises to his people couched in the language of resurrection. In Ezekiel's prophecy, God's power is demonstrated by bringing back dead people to life and returning Israel to the promised land. And it is in the resurrection of the man Christ Jesus that God demonstrates his power by bringing the, his dead body back to life and making it possible for people dead in sin and trespasses to be made alive. It is, the, it is in the case, in this particular uh, prophecy, in the case of the people of Israel, and in the case of Christ, who is the true and better Israel, God did not abandon his son to captivity in Babylon, nor did he abandon his true son in Sheol, but he resurrected them both. Praise God. The Psalms and the prophets predicted the Messiah's suffering, his death, and his descent to Sheol, as well as his resurrection. We'll get into that next week, so just come back. <laughs> All right? The fulfillment of these prophecies is declared by the, ap the apostles who proclaim that the man Christ Jesus is, in fact, this holy one that God did not abandon to Sheol. And as a result, the man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and men because only him can represent both God and man equally. That's your sermon in a sentence. All right? So in conclusion, the man Christ Jesus suffered. The man Christ Jesus died. The man Christ Jesus descended. But praise God that the Lord did not leave him there. And the man Christ Jesus is the only mediator because only he is qualified. Because only he is both God and man and can represent us both equally. 
Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would forgive me and be gracious to me, O oh God, if I've overstepped my boundaries in any way, Lord. Oh God, help us to believe this wonderful mystery that God took on flesh for us, O oh God. That he lived for us, that he died for us, that he suffered for us, and he was rejected for us, O oh God. Help us to believe that your blood, O oh God, has redeemed us. And because of his death, our sins are forgiven. And our enemy, Satan, has been defeated, O oh God. Help us to remember that Satan's power over us is broken. And God, help us by your spirit to press these truths on our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.